Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning, and if, if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Uh, and while you're turning there, I'll bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Covenant Fellowship, though I'm sure you're receiving those regularly by other guys on our team who have come through. So maybe I'll also tell you a second reason why I'm really grateful for you as a church. We've been thrilled to hear the testimonies of all that the Lord's been doing here in your brief uh, life as a church thus far. Um, You are a special blessing to me because you've become the church family of my stepmother, Marlene Hayes. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tom. And I say step only to show honor to the mother who raised me for 19 years before the Lord took her home, but Marlene is very much uh, a blessing to our family. Uh, For decades, been married to my dad and the the only grandmother my children have ever known. So I am grateful to you for being a a loving church family to her. Uh, My little sister is also, speaking of uh, missionaries in the house, um, my little sister and her husband Wes, Cindy and Wes Williamson, are... Uh, with Marlene today. They're uh, on furlough from Honduras at the moment. So it is a blessing to be here with you and uh, to be able to express my personal gratitude to you in that way. Uh, Nick mentioned my wife Rachel's also with me. Uh, She's going to laugh at the jokes this morning, even though she's heard them before. Um, So you'll get a chance to meet her at our our display table afterwards and Happy to answer any questions that you have about the ministry. As uh, Nick mentioned, I serve on the pastoral team at Covenant Fellowship, but in a kind of unusual role. Uh, Most of my job description is leading a separate nonprofit we've established called Covenant Mercies, uh, which exists to build partnerships with God's people in the developing world to care for orphans. Uh, So on on the back end of the sermon this morning, I'll tell you more about, especially about our orphan sponsorship program. Uh, through which we're sponsoring over 1,750 fatherless children now in Uganda, Ethiopia, Zambia, and most recently, Liberia. But I always love to begin in God's Word and remind ourselves of the significant biblical motivation we have for this type of ministry. So if you're with me now in Luke chapter 14, I want to begin reading in verse 12. And just to set the scene, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party. He's at the table of a Pharisee. He, being Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Well, we all know what it's like to be on the receiving end of an act of kindness, a a form of generosity that seems to be motivated more by self-interest than by a true spirit of generosity. The classic example of this for me is the guys I'll refer to as the squeegee guys. I don't know if uh, 
those who grew up in this area will remember back years ago, I'm not sure if they're still allowed to do this, but there'd be certain traffic lights if you're coming from the suburbs into the city, maybe for a sporting event or some kind of event like that. Uh, these guys would be on your car immediately when you hit a certain traffic light. They knew these were longer lights, and so they'd have an opportunity, and they'd get out their squeegees, and they'd start putting the soap on your windshield. Some of them got very good at figuring out whether you were going to do anything for them to decide whether they would complete the job. Um, and by the way, I don't blame the squeegee guys. It's, it's easy to come to somebody with your hand out. There's something commendable about coming with a, an offer of a service. But my point is, from the... From the uh, perspective of the recipient, um, there are forms of generosity that can almost feel like you need to be on your guard against them because they're nothing more than thinly veiled attempts to obligate you to do something in return. Well, this reciprocity ethic, this idea that I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, was very strong in the Greco-Roman world Jesus lived in. It was pervasive in Jewish society of that time as well. So as Jesus sits at the table of this Pharisee, he knows well the mindset that he's addressing. One would act in a generous way toward others for the purpose of eliciting a similar generosity in return. And conversely, if someone uh, performed an act of kindness or generosity to you, you would feel a strong obligation, even an ethical obligation to reciprocate. Now, this reciprocity ethic may not be quite as explicit in our modern Western way of thinking, but it is undeniably present in our world today as well. It lies just beneath the surface in almost all of our social and personal interactions. If we're honest, we really have to admit that there's not a whole lot we do in life that isn't somehow motivated or influenced by our own self-interest. And on certain levels, that's perfectly okay. Uh, the goal of reciprocity is not inherently evil. Uh, in, in fact, there are certain contexts in which it's really the highest goal. Think about the business context. If I'm providing a service or a product for you, and you're happy to part with X number of dollars in exchange for that, and I'm happy to give you that product or service in exchange for X number of dollars, that really defines the ideal business transaction. And, and by the way, if that sounds like an endorsement of free market economic principles, you heard me correctly. <laughs> it is. But that's not my point. My point is simply to say that the goal of reciprocity is not necessarily evil or impure. However, as he so often does, Jesus comes to us here with questions that dig deeper, that probe into the depths of our hearts and motivations and push us beyond these natural human tendencies. Jesus calls us here to a selfless love that expends itself for others without regard for what they can give us in return. And I probably don't need to tell you that this doesn't come naturally to us. In our sinful nature, we are bent toward doing things that are in our, our personal self-interest and neglecting things that really have no personal benefit to us at all. And so against the grain of his own ancient culture, against the grain of our cultures of today, against the grain of our normal and natural human tendencies and sinful nature, Jesus teaches us here that true Christian generosity goes beyond the bounds 
of reciprocity. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of generosity that's uniquely Christian, and by that I mean generosity that is a consequence of our faith, not merely a consequence of our humanity, one of the defining characteristics of generosity that is uniquely Christian is its intentional focus on those who can do nothing to repay it. Jesus says, you want to know whether your love is truly Christian love? Love those who have no capacity to love you in return. You want to know whether your generosity is like that of your Father in heaven? Give to those who can do nothing to repay you. This is generosity in its purest form, and Jesus wants to see that it is a recognizable trait in the lives of his disciples. So in the balance of our time in the Word, I just want to make two observations about this generosity that Jesus commends to us. Two, two observations, two characteristics of this generosity. Number one, it takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. This generosity takes selfless, Christ-like initiative. Now, contrary to the way that Jesus' words may sound to us at face value, he, he's not forbidding us from having our friends over, from being generous toward our families and our loved ones. In fact, if that's what he was commanding us to do, he'd be commanding us to violate other very clear scriptural commands. Remember, Jesus is at the table of a Pharisee. He knows what their practices are. He knows what our human tendencies are, those things that we've just been reflecting on. So he's speaking in hyperbole here. He's using strong language to jar us out of our complacency, to jar us out of our comfort zone, and to make a point. So what point is Jesus making? Well, he's saying that as God's people, our generosity shouldn't be limited to that which is normal. It's normal to be generous toward those who can return the favor to us somehow. As disciples of Christ, we're called to take generous initiative toward those who can't repay us. And listen, I just love this. He is calling us to do this precisely because they can't repay us. I just love the way Jesus explains the reason why we shouldn't invite our friends, our family, the, our rich neighbors that we might want to hang out with to our little dinner party, almost as if it should be intuitive to us. He says, oh, no, no, don't do that, lest they also invite you and you be repaid. Oh, yeah, that would be a tragedy, Jesus. Sure, I see that. I mean, imagine I, I, this afternoon we bump into Elon Musk and his wife, and we have them over for dinner, and, you know, hey, we have a good time, and they invite us out to their presumably palatial estate, and after dinner there, maybe Elon says, hey, let's go up in SpaceX. This one's on me. I mean, that would be a tragedy. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that that would be a tragedy. What he's saying is, that's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world operates. If your generosity remains only within those bounds, what difference really has the grace of God made? Read verses 13 and 14 with me again. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. Notice that word because. He doesn't say you'll be blessed even though they can't repay you. You'll be blessed despite the fact that they can't repay you. No, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
there's a cause and effect relationship here. The blessing for you is the direct result of the fact that you have selected as the object of your generosity those who cannot return the favor. And as you take initiative toward those who can't repay you, fully aware that they can't repay you, God promises that he will repay you for that very same reason. And this, Jesus says, is one of the things that ought to characterize us as God's people and distinguish us from the world. So this is a characteristic that differentiates Christian love from love that we might think of as natural or normal, even for those apart from Christ. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus spoke in similar terms when calling us to love our enemies. We have this... uh, to be projected on the screen so you don't need to turn back to Luke chapter 6. But beginning in Luke 6.32, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now did you notice the similar biblical logic there? How do we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of the Most High? Well, it's not by doing the same things that are not only possible, but even normal apart from faith. As Jesus might say, what credit is that to you? How does that distinguish you from the world? The world neglects to show kindness to those who can do nothing to repay it. Jesus says, not so with you. It shall not be so with us as his disciples. We demonstrate that we are children of our Father in heaven and disciples of his Son, Jesus, by taking initiative where it wouldn't be natural, or where it wouldn't be normal for us to do so. By loving even our enemies. Think about that. I think we get so used to these words rolling off of Jesus' tongue that we forget how radical that is. Loving even our enemies. And in a similar way, by intentionally ensuring that our generosity extends even to those who can do nothing to repay us. Now, let's bring the scene back to our Pharisees' table because a most profound accent is placed on Jesus' exhortation here in a very simple fact. And it's a fact that goes right over the head of his original hearers, but we we should see that we register it this morning. That simple fact is this. The one who is reclined there at the table with them is addressing them because he himself is God incarnate. He's there with them at this table because he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant and came and took initiative toward those who could do nothing for him in return. Soon he will give all in in giving his life and death on the cross for those who could do nothing to repay him for his sacrifice.
Listen, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're exploring what the Christian faith is all about, it's important for you to understand there is nothing you can do to repay God. You don't come to Jesus as a way of of repaying God for the wrongs that you've done or repaying God for the kindnesses that he's shown you. You come to Jesus as an act of faith, believing that his death and his resurrection are sufficient to cover the penalty for your sin and restore your relationship to God. Now, for those of us who are already in a position of faith this morning, I trust you see the rich gospel truth bound up in what Jesus is calling us to here. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Take initiative toward those who can do nothing to repay you. Lavish them with love and generosity and kindness. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he came and left behind the riches of heaven to to come to this earth to seek and save lost sinners like you and me. This generosity that Jesus commends to us takes selfless, Christ-like initiative toward those who can't repay it. Well, secondly, just the second observation about this generosity is simply this. It's driven by faith. This generosity is driven and fueled by faith. And please note that even as Jesus calls us to a generosity that's not self-interested, he simultaneously lifts our eyes to a reward, a personal reward that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Uh, Amazingly, as we put off this natural human tendency to be motivated by the things of this world and take initiative instead toward those who could do nothing to repay us in the terms of this world, Jesus promises that we will be rewarded in eternity. We can only embrace this reward in the here and the now by faith, by trusting simply that what Jesus says to us here is rock-solid truth, though we can't grasp it in the here and now. What we sacrifice in this life, um, friends, I mean, this is the paradox of giving in the kingdom of God. This is the paradox. What we sacrifice in this life uh, for those who can do nothing to repay us will accrue to our benefit in eternity. And we shouldn't pretend like it's not a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to give toward those who can do nothing to repay us. It, It will cost you something. It will cost you the ability to use those funds for some other purpose that might benefit you more in the here and now. But... When you consider that sacrifice in light of the eternal reward Jesus promises us here, it really is no sacrifice at all. It's better thought of as an investment. Uh, And in a world uh, with a devaluing dollar and uh, cryptocurrency fraudsters going out to trial, I can tell you there is not a more secure investment you can make than this. 
When you think about it, there are many sacrifices we make in life uh, in the short term uh, for a reward we expect to receive later. Uh, some of you know I happen to be someone who loves to get out in the garden, so a few months from now I'll be thrilled to get out there and get some dirt under my fingernails and start working the soil and get some plants in the ground that within a few months will be producing much fruit for us. Uh, a few years ago, I, I became mildly obsessed, uh, Rachel will confirm, with uh, with perennial fruit-bearing bushes, and so uh, especially blueberry bushes. So we planted 11 blueberry bushes at different places around our property, and I had to throw myself into all kinds of research. You have to, uh, blueberries bushes will, will serve you well for a long time, but they need the right kind of soil, so I had to basically replace the soil that I was planting them in. They have very shallow roots, so you need to learn how to, the, to put the kind of mulch that they appreciate on, on top of their feet, so their feet stay a little bit wet. And the, the other key element for me, I was starting from little dormant sticks. I mean, they weren't bushes at all when I planted them. And the other key that they tell you to do, uh, they, who is they, right? We always say they. Uh, the people who know about blueberries, I guess I'm one of they now because I'm telling you. Anyway, <laughs> um, they say when you plant a baby blueberry bush like that, you need to pinch the blossoms off the plant for the first three seasons. So they leaf out in the spring, and then the blossoms come out. Now you probably know the, blo the blossoms are what become the berries after the bees come and do their miraculous work. So you're, by pinching those blossoms off the plant in the spring and dropping them on the ground, you're foregoing the fruit of that bush for that season. And so Three seasons in a row, you're supposed to do that. And, and I remember the first two seasons, it was easy. It was such a baby plant, you know, wasn't much to speak of. That third season, there were a lot of blossoms that we were picking off those bushes and dropping on the ground. And I wanted to taste the fruit of that tree by then. So it was, it was a little harder in that third season to pinch those blossoms. But I did as I was told. And uh, we have experienced the blessing of that. A couple of seasons ago, I didn't make Rachel count this last year. A couple seasons ago, we counted 128 pints of blueberries that we have harvested. We're giving them away. We're eating them on everything. We're canning them. We're freezing them. I mean, you'd be surprised. It's kind of a miracle that I haven't turned blue. I eat so many blueberries. But listen, the point is this. Jesus is asking us here, do you want to be satisfied with a handful of blueberries now? Or will you believe me that by making that small sacrifice now, you will receive a, a, a result of that. You will receive a future harvest that you cannot even fathom. Well, this is a reward that can only be seen by the eyes of faith. And God is pleased. I even think there's a unique way that he's glorified when we simply take him at his word. Now, we can't see it right now, but we take you at your word and we believe, we live our lives in light of this reality that he's communicating to us. When we fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, Jesus is lifting our eyes here to that unseen reward, which, though unseen, is every bit as real as the tangible sacrifice, only it's far more lasting. Several years ago, I became aware of a couple in my home church who were sponsoring seven children through our orphan sponsorship program. And seven is a, is a wonderful number, um, 
it's, I mean, that's a lot of children, and it was a great blessing to see that, but honestly, that didn't set them apart. There are others who are sponsoring seven and even more. What, what really amazed me when I happened to stumble upon this information, uh, and by the way, I don't go looking through our database to find out how many people my friends are sponsoring. I just, I happened to stumble upon this information, um, and, and the reason it caught my attention was I know this couple, and I know they're just living a very normal uh, middle-class American life. They're not rich uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So once I became aware of that, I just had to drop them a note in the mail and tell them how much I appreciated the sacrifices they're making to sponsor so many children. Well, sometime after that, they received my note. We bumped into each other. They mentioned the note. And so I came to learn how that transpired through the years. Um, Just like many of us did when we first launched the sponsorship program in 2003, uh, they signed up to sponsor one or two children at that time. But then each year, as the husband, who's the breadwinner of this family, uh, would receive an increase at work, they would just add one more child. And and, uh, kind of based on the principle that the Lord provided well for us last year, and now he's given us an increase. Let's share a bit of that increase with another child in need. Uh, By the way, I checked in the database. I do check on them now, um, intentionally. And uh, they are now sponsoring 21 children through our program. So they've continued that practice through the years, evidently. Now, my, my point is not to suggest that we should all be sponsoring 21 children, or even that we should all be following that pattern of adding a new child each year. My point is simply to say, these are not people of significant means by American standards. Uh, They are making real sacrifices. The funds that they are using to sponsor that many children could be used uh, to benefit their own standard of living. And you know what? None of us would even look at them and call them self-indulgent. They still wouldn't be keeping up with the Joneses. But this is a couple who is not interested in in keeping up with the Joneses. This is a couple whose eyes are fixed not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. They are sacrificing now for a a reward that's being kept in heaven for them where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. I don't know about you, but I want to live my life in light of that reality as well. Well, when I think of Jesus' exhortation here to be generous toward those who can do nothing to repay us, I can't help but think of the children in our orphan sponsorship program. Uh, If you are sponsoring children through our program, and by the way, I should have said this up front, I know that many of you are, and thank you for uh, your significant generosity in the lives of these kids through the years. If you are sponsoring children in our program, it is virtually uh, impossible that those kids will ever be able to do anything to repay you. Well, that is exactly the kind of giving that Jesus is commending to us in this passage. It's precisely this kind of generosity that he promises to repay at the resurrection of the just. And that phrase, hearing Jesus say that phrase, the resurrection of the just, immediately puts me in mind of Matthew 25 where Jesus foretells of that final day when we'll stand before him and he'll say, well done, enter into your reward. For when I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And we'll say, Jesus, when did we see you sick or hungry or thirsty? He'll say, even as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, 
you've done it unto me. And I just imagine, that part is thoroughly biblical. This part is from my imagination. But I just imagine that Jesus, in that moment, might take up a young lady by his side and say, I want you to know Chalcedon. Chalcedon was born with HIV. She lost both of her parents to AIDS. She was on a trajectory to suffer that same fate. But you gave when there was nothing she could do to repay you. And that giving also brought a lady named Helena into her life. And Helena led her to faith. Calcanon is here today because you gave when there was nothing she could do to repay you. Or maybe he'll pull up a young man named Charles and say, this is Charles. He was a student at Lighthouse Christian School. And he gave his life to Jesus at a young age at a VBS that Lighthouse put on. Later, he was able to go to college on a college scholarship, and he became a teacher and influenced the lives of so many other young people from that role as a teacher. That all happened because you gave when there was nothing Charles could do to repay you. My friends, think of the ripple effects throughout eternity. Think of the children and grandchildren in the future of the children that we're sponsoring today who will know the love of Jesus because somebody shared it with their mother or somebody shared it with their grandfather when they were just little children running around in the community with inadequate care. Think of all the lives that will be touched by the lives that we're touching. I believe part of our reward in heaven will be the joy of seeing with the eyes of eternity the full eternal impact our acts of kindness and generosity were able to achieve in this life. It takes the eyes of faith to see that in the here and now. And I couldn't be more grateful for the many people who have given with that kind of faith and joined hands with us in that kind of faith, investing generously in this work for over 20 years now.